Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pineapple Pizza podcast discusses the histories, cultures, and beliefs of regions around the world. These stories often contain mature and sometimes disturbing content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Pineapple Pizza podcast, where we serve up slices of mythology cryptozoology, and urban legends. It's an interesting combination of flavors. Weird, but it works. Today's special is Turkish epic poetry. I'm your hostess, Ashley, and with me today, as always, are the amazing and adventurous Emily and Lindsay. Hey. Well, hello there. Hello, ladies. Are you ready to go on a really long quest? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Need more coffee. Yeah, same. (laughs) This was one of those episodes where I picked it. I was really excited, like, at the time, and I really (laughs) wanted to do it. And then I started reading it, and I was like, oh, fuck. (laughs) Like, what have you done? But you know what? It's going to be all right, because we're going to make fun of it. It's going to feel good. (laughs) All right. So I sort of cheated, again, because I do that a lot, because the shit that I have to do for this show is always way older than Emily's stuff and Lindsay's stuff. So, you know, if you're one of those people who doesn't know that much about geography or history, countries change a lot, and sometimes they disappear altogether and become completely different countries. So when you're trying to backdoor (laughs) something in, you're like... (laughs) Okay, where was this empire? All right, what new countries are there? And then you just pick one and you're like, I don't fucking care which part of Mesopotamia this story really came from. Now it's from Turkey. So that's what happened. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about Mesopotamia. It's not here anymore. So there's probably a lot of people out there who are like, I don't know what that is. And I've never heard of it. And I don't know where it was, except now that you know that Turkey is somehow involved. Not the bird. Not the bird. (laughs) There are no gobbles involved. There could be, though. I wish I could make a turkey noise. I would do it right now, but I can't. God damn it. Why are you so good at sound effects? All right, so the historical region known as Mesopotamia occupied large sections of the modern-day countries of Turkey, Iraq, Syria, and Kuwait. 
Today, we often refer to this same area of the world as the Middle East. Mesopotamia derives from the ancient Greek words meso, meaning between or in the midst of, and one that we should be familiar with if you've been here for a little bit, potamos. Potatoes? Meaning ri- no, meaning river. Nope, think <laughs> hippopotamus. <laughs> in between the potatoes. Between the potatoes. <laughs> yep. That's me. <laughs> me too. Oh my god. I do spend a lot of time in the midst of potatoes, so what are you going to (laughs) do? But no, actually, Potamos means river. And it's easy to understand how they came up with this name, because this region benefited from being situated around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So, they're kind of (laughs) literal. Makes sense. In fact, Mesopotamia made up the northern part of the region known as the Fertile Crescent because of how lush these lands were compared to the surrounding deserts, all because of being situated on the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and to some extent the Nile, but we're not going to be over that far today, so that's probably the last time I'm going to remember to even mention the Nile. (laughs) Water does help make things Mm -hmm. green. It does, yeah. It turns out when you're trying to sustain life, water's good. It is, (laughs) indeed. It helps. It helps. It's not essential or anything. No. I mean, I don't know. It feels essential to me, but I'm wrong about a lot of stuff. (laughs) The berries. God damn you, berries. (laughs) Ruining my life. Anyway, (laughs) the river system and climate combined to form an area that was once resplendent with natural resources and the ability to sustain life. I'm getting ahead of myself. To sustain life. Not sustain life without the two. You need that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another thing you need to keep in mind is that these rivers regularly flooded this region whenever they would have their rainy season. And I know I said I wouldn't talk about the Nile again, but the Nile did the same thing and it still does. So I lied and I brought it up again. (laughs) Another nickname for this region is the Cradle of Civilization. Have either of you ever heard Cradle of Civilization before? Yes. Yes. Do you know why it's called that? Because that's where the first uh, civilization of Ur was founded, wasn't it? First recognized civilization? That's one potential explanation. There's another one, too, though. Writing is invented there? I don't know. You're on to something. I can smell what Emily's cooking. <laughs> Isn't that where like creation supposedly took place? Like the birth That's- the birthplace of Adam and Eve? Well, not necessarily Adam and Eve, but man. Yeah. yeah. Adam and Eve is a little too Christian centric for me to agree with it. Yeah. But yes. <laughs> but but also yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being a stickler because I do that. Um, Another reason that it's called the Cradle of Civilization is because of the vast number of innovations that were achieved by the early human societies that dwelt in this area. These innovations are pretty impressive, and they include things like the invention of the wheel, the development of cursive writing, the invention of metal and copper working, which was used for irrigation, which they also invented... 
and the development of the, of the studies of mathematics, agriculture, and astronomy. Damn. If you don't feel bad about your accomplishments yet, who the fuck are you? Because <laughs> Stephen Hawking's no longer with us, so... <laughs> Humans first settled in Mesopotamia in the Paleolithic era, or as I refer to call it, the Stone Age, because it's easier to say. <laughs> that period lasted from 2.5 million years ago to circa 10,000 BCE. Around 14,000 BCE, the settlers here moved into small communities made up of little circular dwellings, and they're super cute. And I'll see if I can find some good pictures <laughs> to post on Instagram. <laughs> About 5,000 years after that, these little communities began to form into agrarian factions that started out in the northern reaches of this area and spread south, continuing to grow for thousands of years until the creation of what we would recognize as cities. They had fucking cities. <laughs> How cool is that to have cities 9,000 BCE? That's crazy epic they would have definitely had to have perfected their agrarian communities by that time to be able to support a city and depending on who you ask maybe aliens i think that's yeah <laughs> yeah aliens always that's the answer so i'm gonna ask a really dumb question hit me with your best shot pat benatar what's uh agrarian mean farming based gotcha agriculture not a dumb question. You don't deal with that much in art school, so just making sure I understood what that meant. There are probably plenty of people that have no idea what that no. word is. Yeah, that's a great question, because I did, wasn't going to define it because I often forget to do things like that. So <laughs> That's why I'm here. The dumb one. <laughs> no! You're not the dumb one. If anyone's dumb, it's me, because I'm always like, oh, everybody knows that, so I'm just going to not explain myself at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now the first of these urban marvels which you know is the one that we're going to be talking about today is uruk have either of you heard of uruk before uh yes i believe so it sounds familiar but i know like zero about it i'm just familiar with the name you've heard it though and that's what matters Uruk dates back to roughly 3200 BCE, and it was built just as firmly by the riches of conquest and trade as it was by agriculture and mud bricks. That's right, they fucking made it out of mud bricks. How cool is that? It's so fucking cool. That's awesome. Get this, in its heyday, Uruk's population was over 50,000 Dang. Wow. That's pretty impressive. A lot of people. That gives, like, London a run for its money back in the day. Does it? I don't know anything yeah. <laughs> about that. Yeah. I believe it. I can't remember, wh I can't remember what time, but at, at some point, it would have given London a run for its money, as far <laughs> as population density is concerned. Pretty impressive mm -hmm. for some really ancient people. By 3000 BCE, the dominant civilization in this region was the Sumer people, and it was the ancient Sumerians who developed the first system of writing called cuneiform. I was going to say, I recognize that name. Yes, you do. 
I think probably most people have heard of the Sumerians, but I could be wrong about that. If you haven't, I feel like if you paid attention in any history at all, you've probably heard of cuneiform, but mm -hmm. maybe not. I guess it depends where you go to school. If that's not impressive enough for you, the Sumerian language has no known analogs, meaning that it has zero relationship to any other known existing language. Now that's freaking cool. That is really cool. Yeah. They dreamt that shit up all on their own. It's awesome. That is awesome. Historians don't know for sure if many of the kings on the Sumerian kings list developed circa 2100 BCE actually existed because <laughs> they are also featured in Sumerian mythological texts, which makes it a little harder to be sure, like, if all of them existed. Like, we're sure some of them did, mm -hmm. but we don't know how many, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, with that being said, one of the names from that aforementioned list is that of Lugal Banda, who came to power circa 2750 BCE, and Lugal Banda's son is said to have been Gilgamesh. I oh. recognize that name. Yep. You should, because I've been bitching about it enough <laughs> for the last few weeks. <laughs> Anyway, he just so happens to be the main character in today's big story, which is going to be, drumroll except no, the Epic of Gilgamesh. I can't do a drumroll. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to try, and then I was like, don't, don't embarrass yourself like that. <laughs> -da 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 -da. <laughs> it's the Epic of Gilgamesh. Oh my god. Surprise. So as much as I'm like being all whiny about it, Let's be real, this story is pretty impressive, especially since it is considered to be the first great work of literature, like, ever. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, the tablets that the old Babylonian version was written on can be dated to the period from circa 2100 BCE to 1800 BCE. That's so crazy. To put that into a little bit more context, most people are like, when they think of really old works, especially in our country of the United States, are like, the Bible, that's super old, that's probably the oldest thing. Guess what? It's not. The Epic of Gilgamesh predates the Hebrew Bible, aka the Old Testament, in case you're not following me, by anywhere from 350 to 700 years. Yeah. Wow. And some scholars believe it even influenced stories that are found in the Bible. That wouldn't surprise me. If there really isn't any other literature out there to draw from. Yep. Exactly. Everything derives from something else. It does. Apparently everything derives from Gilgamesh in some to some degree, really. I was going to say, unless you're a Sumerian language, because then you fucking are just magic and you came into being from nothing. <laughs> <laughs> they are the OG. They are, for sure. I'm not going to repeat what you said because I can't pull it off, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, it also predates Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, in case anyone's curious. 
Originally inscribed in cuneiform on 12 clay tablets by an unknown author, the Epic of Gilgamesh tells the story of the fifth king from the first dynasty of Uruk as he goes on a lengthy hero's journey, ultimately in search of immortality. Gilgamesh is thought to have lived during the period from 2850 BCE to 2700 BCE, and that might seem like too broad of a period of time for us to be talking about, until you realize the epic poem claims the king's reign lasted for 126 years. It's that Mediterranean diet. They had zero preservatives. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> just salt. <laughs> they just salted him and he kept walking around. My cholesterol is through the roof. <laughs> <laughs> My skin oh is so dry. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> if anywhere in the cradle, it's moist here. <laughs> Did you hear it's between two potatoes? <laughs> oh, okay. Um, we're with that. Sorry, we're, I'm done. It's all right. We're, we're finished with our appetizers. I'll be back with the main course right after this break. And we're back. I hope you're hungry because it's time for a main course, and it might just last 126 years. <laughs> <laughs> My jaw hurts just thinking about it. Just become a Yarmaya. You. <laughs> oh no. Hannibal <laughs> oh, no. Lecter, who invited you to this party? <laughs> Hello, Clarice. <laughs> <laughs> you're not eating my liver. Alright, so... I paraphrased significant portions of this because I was like, oh god, no. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the epic opens by introducing Gilgamesh, because of course it does. We have to meet the hero or Mm -hmm. you can't start the story. So he is the son of King Lugalbanda and Ninsun, the great wild cow goddess, who I'm convinced I was in a former life. (laughs) She's a cow goddess. He is two-thirds god and one-third man. Don't even get me started on how that does not work. (laughs) (laughs) It's not how DNA works. Nope. Gilgamesh's strength is unsurpassed, although to be fair, that might be because he is also incredibly tall and generally just a huge brick house of a guy. He's a brick house. He's Mata Mata. He's letting it all hang out. Actually, kind of is letting it all hang out. One of his feet alone is described as measuring three cubits, which is almost four and a half feet. That's one human foot. He looks so ridiculous in my head right now. I just picture him flopping around with one gigantic foot that's like having a small child strapped to his shoe. All right. He's Ronald McDonald now. Yes. <laughs> so wait, was he born like a calf? I mean, maybe his mom's a cow goddess. Yeah, that would make sense. I don't know why that makes sense, but to, in my in my brain, it makes sense. He just, like, flops out. Yeah, the story does not actually describe his birth, and we should all be very grateful for that, because we would never get through this. Ever. 
Um, anyway, I think it's uh, basically safe to say he's pretty much almost a giant. Like, mm-hmm. he's huge. So, of course, he's going to be stronger than everybody else. But he was also apparently super hot. Like, attractive, not, you know, just, it's probably very hot over there, too. I don't know. <laughs> I've never been. Personally, I don't know if I believe the hype, though. So, just wait. We'll get there. You don't believe he had a four-foot foot? No, I don't. Four and a half foot foot. <laughs> <laughs> that half. That half. It makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Four, we believe. Four and a half, that's just pushing it. Sometimes a girl just needs a half. What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out, uh, you know, because he's such an impressive human, he's also performed some pretty awesome feats. Shocking, I know. The hero has done really cool stuff. What? Oh, yeah. Such as opening mountain passes and digging wells with his bare hands. I do that all the Seemed time. Seems legit. I just look at a pair of mountains and I'm like, you know what we need here? A pass. And then I just do one of those and spread them out. And we're done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it turns out he's also kind of an asshole. Not surprised, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, he's an asshole and he likes to oppress his people. To the young men of Uruk, King Gilgamesh is merciless to the point of sometimes just killing them. You know? can't handle the heat get out of the kitchen or i'll kill you (laughs) with my four and a half feet long feet the actual poem says it much nicer than i just did it says he did take the son from the father (laughs) honestly i think that sounds worse (laughs) ouch Oh, just wait for it, because in my opinion, women are still getting the shittier end of this deal. Oh. oh, of course they are. As for the young women, he sexually assaults them at will. Well, that's just fantastic. Also seems legit. Right? And the poem puts it like this. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Quote, Gilgamesh left no maiden to her mother, no girl to her betrothed. No bride to her husband. Every maiden did he know. And what a whore. Him, not the ladies. Yeah. I, yeah. He's he's not my favorite human. No. No. By far. The people cried out in anguish from Gilgamesh's cruelty, raising their voices to the gods in a common plea for relief. The gods of heaven chose to heed these cries for mercy and summoned their lord, Anu, who'd had a hand in Gilgamesh's creation. The other gods pointed out to Anu that none lived who could withstand Gilgamesh's strength, which had led to his great arrogance and allowed Gilgamesh to see all of his people as beneath him and therefore subject to his whims. After listening to their case, Anu bade them to summon Aruru, the goddess of birth, and said, Let her now create a man who can rival Gilgamesh in strength, and let him contend with the king to put him into check, and then Uruk will know peace. So they did as Anu instructed and called out for Aruru to create a man who was the equal of Gilgamesh. Aruru envisioned in her mind the man she wished to bring into being. And then she gathered up a whole bunch of clay and threw it into the woods. (laughs) As you do. Ah. 
As you do. <laughs> she, she just yeeted it. it. <laughs> she was like, all right, I've got the picture in my mind. I've got a bunch of clay. I'm going to yeet this into the wilderness and we're done. <laughs> From this clay sprang forth Enkidu. Born in silence, Enkidu was as courageous as Ninurta, god of war. Hair covered the entirety of Enkidu's form, and the hair upon his head was as flowing and luxuriant as that of a maiden's. Oh, Kind of want to brush it. So, like, he's Fabio, but also kind of a werewolf-looking motherfucker, because everything's hairy. He's like Bigfoot, but with, like, Pantene Pro-V hair. Yes, he's Hydralicious. <laughs> Maybe he's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. <laughs> Maybe it's clay and trees. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. I lost my spot and I was like, uh, fuck. That was worth it, though. Enkidu knew neither people nor civilization, and he grazed upon the grass and quenched his thirst at watering holes like a wild animal. One day, a hunter happened upon Enkidu at one of these watering holes, and the hunter's heart was struck with terror. <laughs> For the next two days, the man returned to this watering hole, and each time the moment his eyes landed upon Enkidu, fear flooded his human heart. And I assume he probably crapped himself, but it doesn't say that in the story. <laughs> he wore his brown pants. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. Especially the second and the third day, because you already know what you're in for. Yeah. Fear gripped his heart and his anus. (laughs) (laughs) Gripped his heart and loosened his anus. Exactly. (laughs) This hunter told his father about the man he'd seen come forth from the hills to drink at the watering hole alongside the wild beasts. He strikes fear into my heart, father, and he has freed all of my game from my traps. He does not allow me to hunt. His father advised the hunter to seek out Gilgamesh and Uruk, as his strength is the greatest in all the land, and tell the king of his plight. Surely Gilgamesh would send the hunter back with Shamhat, a harlot from the temple of Ishtar, to seduce this wild man, and then the beasts around him would reject his company. Wow. Send this sex worker out to seduce this wild man that's covered in hair with Fabio hair. Then we're not sure as a man or an animal. That'll fix him. And then all the other animals will be like, you're not one of us. Wait. <laughs> you're gross. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to fuck the wilderness right out of him. <laughs> he's done and he's like, oh, I'm not refined. What am I doing? Time for high tea. I was going to say something, but it's really inappropriate, so I'm not going to. I'm like, don't. I don't want to. No, I'm not going to do it. Hold it back. All right. The hunter did as his father advised, and sure enough, Gilgamesh sent the priestess Shamhat to tame Enkidu. And by tame, we mean bone. When they returned to the watering hole together, the hunter bade the priestess to remove her clothes and seduce the wild man. And when Enkidu looked upon her naked beauty, he could not resist, because, you know, it's too difficult to control yourself around all those curves, mm-hmm. probably. Yeah. I wouldn't know. Never had a problem. They're probably very dangerous curves. Probably. 
He succumbed to her wiles and lay with her over and over for seven days and seven nights, until at last his lust was sated. But when he tried to return to the animals, they no longer recognized him as their peer and fled from his presence, for Enkidu was no longer pure. So I guess all animals are like unicorns, like they prefer virgins in this story, but like doesn't make any sense because animals bone all the time. I was just going to say, are these all like immaculate conception animals? Like, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) His strength and speed seem diminished. Well, dog, you've been fucking for seven days and seven nights (laughs) and you probably haven't eaten anything, but what do I know? Or gone to the watering hole to re- like quench your thirst. So you're gonna you're gonna love the next part though. But he was now endowed with wisdom. He just came all the dumbness. All the dumbness literally came out of his body, and now he's just smart. <laughs> I mean, it just goes to show that some cultures do know women are smarter than men. <laughs> 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 Shamhat said to Enkidu that he'd become wise like a god and no longer needed to roam about the wilderness. She bade him to travel with her to Uruk, where King Gilgamesh reigned. And as she spoke, Enkidu decided he would go with her to the city and challenge Gilgamesh, for he believed his own strength must be greater since he'd been begotten in the wilderness. Shamhat warned her lover that he should temper his arrogance because the king's strength was unmatched and his godlike powers would warn him of Enkidu's coming. As Shamhat predicted, Gilgamesh dreamt that a great star fell from the sky and landed upon him, and though he tried with all his might, he found himself unable to so much as budge the star. As he continued to struggle against the star's weight, the people of Uruk gathered around to witness as Gilgamesh was defeated by this star. And when they beheld it, Gilgamesh's people kissed the star out of gratitude. Only then did Gilgamesh realize that the only way he could win was to embrace this star as a friend. When he awoke, Gilgamesh told his mother Ninsun, you know, the wild cow goddess. I'm just going to keep saying that because come on, that's fucking cool. As she was eating cud, he was like, hey, mom. Hey, mom, I don't understand my dreams. (laughs) And she explained to him the dream's true meaning. A stout-hearted man would arrive in Uruk who would be Gilgamesh's true equal. And this man would be Gilgamesh's savior, too, so long as he embraced him in friendship. Gilgamesh responded that he wished this to be fall in accordance with Enlil's command. That's another god. I'm not sure what he's god of. There are lots of gods in this story. There are too many for me to keep track. I am sorry. <laughs> I look, I tried at one point. I had like a fucking cheat sheet going. And then I was like, no, this is too confusing. And I gave up. So it's a god. A god. A powerful one. Um. So anyway, he wished for a friend to advise him. Shamhat, aware of all of this, told Enkidu of Gilgamesh's dream and his conversation with Ninsun. In Enkidu's heart, he could feel the warmth of Gilgamesh's love. Gross. Say it with me. Oh, Lindsay, come on. Aww. <laughs> well, wait for this. 
Enkidu and Shamhat spent another seven days and seven nights coupling in the wilderness. Bow, chicka, bow, bow. That poor woman, man. You'd be raw. You'd be walking like you've been riding a horse for a month. She probably was. <laughs> <laughs> He's got her walking side to side like Ariana Grande. It's fun. <laughs> when they were both spent at last, Shamhat bed. Bade? God damn it. I hate the word bade, but it's in this so much. <laughs> I think like midway through, I just started switching it all with different words because I was like, I'm tired of saying that. But for now, she bade him <laughs> to prepare to leave with her and travel to Uruk. Shamhat rearranged her own clothing in such a way that she had enough extra cloth to clothe Enkidu as well. Because, you know, now he's naked, even though he's still really hairy. I don't know. And he's, like, aware of the fact that he's naked. Like, oh. Like, oh, I have junk. Never noticed it before. Probably shouldn't let that swing. And she's a prostitute, but happens to have all these extra layers of clothing to hand to a man who's probably much bigger than her. I don't think she's a a just, like, a sex worker. She's, like, also a priestess, though. So it's not... Like, it's complicated. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like... Even back then, they still would have worn lots of, like, swaths of fabric, right? Like, they tended to, to like, protect themselves from the skin, from the sun and stuff, right? When they wear, like, lots of fabric. Perhaps. That's what my assumption is. So, I mean, I don't... I wasn't there. This is before my time. Okay, and then she led him by the hand as one might a child from the wilderness. Aww. But he's so much wiser now. That's true. Yeah, but he got he got his wisdom from like boning her, so she's still smarter. That's like you can only absorb mm-hmm. so much. Yes. They stopped first at a cluster of shepherds' huts, and when the shepherds beheld Enkidu, they immediately gathered about him and said how much his stature and strength reminded them of Gilgamesh. They placed food before him, but Shamhat had to guide Enkidu on how to eat this food as he'd previously eaten only the grasses of the wilderness. After he'd eaten, Enkidu groomed himself for the first time and was anointed with oil, and so he became a man. He didn't lick himself. (laughs) (laughs) You said groomed. I'm just naturally oily. (laughs) That's so you don't smell bad. Come on. (laughs) Enkidu repaid the shepherd's kindness by brandishing a weapon and defeating the wolves and lions who'd been tormenting their flocks. Once these predators were driven off, the shepherds were able to partake in undisturbed slumber for the first time, and Enkidu watched over their herds that night. Yeah, I'm really unclear on how long he's with them, because, you know... These stories aren't exactly super clear about what day things are, so we're just Mm going to go with one day. Enkidu spied a traveler rushing along a path so quickly that his curiosity was piqued. So Enkidu asked the man why he was in such a rush. The traveler explained that he was heading to a wedding celebration where, according to the normal practice, the bride would be offered first to Gilgamesh to deflower her before she could then rejoin her husband. God Hearing this filled Enkidu with wrath, so he vowed to hasten his journey to Uruk and challenge Gilgamesh. Enkidu and Shamhat arrived just as he... W- 
sorry, just as the king was about to enter the nuptial house to take the bride's virginity. But Enkidu placed himself in front of the gate, barring Gilgamesh's entry. As you can probably imagine, this did not go over well with Gilgamesh. Probably not. Nope, he was probably like, who the fuck do you think you are? And then they started fighting. That part wasn't in there. They just started fighting, but I feel like there's probably some trash talk first. Yep. Yeah. Enkidu and Gilgamesh fought with such force that the stone walls around them trembled and the doorposts shattered. Yep. That's some fighting right there. And still they raged on throughout the city of Uruk, eventually coming to the great marketplace where crowds gathered about them to watch as they battled on. When they saw Enkidu's strength, the people rejoiced that at last their king had found an equal to challenge him. You know you're kind of a douchebag when all of your people are like, good, kick his ass, he needs a little sense knocked into him. (laughs) Exactly. After a protracted battle, Gilgamesh at last overcame his adversary and placed his knee upon the fallen Enkidu. In the very moment of his victory, the king's anger passed away. Enkidu said to Gilgamesh, There is no other like you, for your mother, the goddess Ninsun, you know, wild cow goddess, I can't stop doing that. (laughs) She exalted you before all others. And the great god Enlil wrote as your destiny for you to be the king over the city of Uruk. No one can withstand your might. Then the two men embraced in friendship. Think of it as a much older version of that weird-ass scene in Batman vs. Superman when they both find out their moms are named Martha. It doesn't make sense, but they're best friends forever now. It's like the Spider-Man meme where they're both pointing at each other like, Hey, you're also a Spider-Man. Best friends? Or that scene in Step Brothers where they suddenly are like, Are we best friends now? I think so. And then they hug. That's Mm -hmm. just how men do it, I guess. I don't know. I've never been a dude. (laughs) I haven't either, so I wouldn't know. Gilgamesh introduced his new ride or die to his mother. And Ninsun praised Enkidu's might and stature. You okay? <laughs> new ride or die. Hey, mom, this is my new bro. I had to, like, you know, spiff it up a little. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. She told her son that while Enkidu had fought him as an equal, this wild man had no family. And now that the beasts had abandoned him, Enkidu was alone in the world. Hearing the truth of the goddess's words caused Enkidu's strength to desert him and his eyes to well up with tears. Gilgamesh asked why Enkidu had grown so mournful, and his new friend responded with a sorrowful cry, I am heartsick, for I am alone. Where did his girlfriend go? Uh, Probably back to Ishtar's temple. She needed a rest, man. (laughs) She was like, I've been ridden hard. (laughs) (laughs) I need to take a sabbatical (laughs) see you in seven years or three because everything's three or seven (laughs) Gilgamesh told Enkidu that together they would journey into the cedar forest where a fierce giant named Humbaba dwelt that's right I have to say Humbaba a bunch of times it's gonna (laughs) suck (laughs) And with their strength combined, they'd drive his evil from the land. With Humbaba vanquished, Gilgamesh would then cut down the great cedar tree, 
and this legendary act would ensure their names would echo throughout history. In response, Enkidu told his friend that he feared to approach Humbaba because his strength was so diminished, and because Humbaba's guardianship of the forest had been commanded by Enlil himself. Surely this was a fool's errand. Enkidu declared that any man who dared to enter the cedar forest and face Humbaba would be overcome by weakness, and to undertake such a task could only result in failure and... death. <laughs> Had to pause before we got to the, you know, final hammer drop in there. Death. Dun dun dun. Gilgamesh was not swayed by Enkidu's concerns and insisted that climbing the mountain and felling the great cedar tree would allow them to achieve the godlike status to dwell in the heavens. Because, you know, you can't get to the heavens, apparently, uh, in Sumerian religion unless you do something really badass. Just so we're clear, everybody else goes to the netherworld. Well, that kind of sucks. It depends on who you ask, though, because it's the same thing in Greek mythology. Like, everybody goes to Hades. Only the gods get to be in heaven, so, yeah. You know, people kind of suck, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's the only way he could think of for them to achieve the godlike status they need to dwell in the heavens and for their names to live on forever. He explained that it is not for men to live into eternity, for our days are numbered from the moment we are born. So there is nothing to fear in dying a glorious death. Enkidu spoke to the men of Uruk, seeking the counsel of old and young alike to help him dissuade Gilgamesh from entering the cedar forest. <laughs> He's like, yo, this nut job over here has a death wish and I don't want to go down with it. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I know I just met this guy, but he is bananas, and we need to talk him out of it. <laughs> His words of caution swayed the city elders, so they went to Gilgamesh and told him that his strength and valor had misled him into thinking he was invincible. But it turns out their language was a little too close to what Enkidu already said to Gilgamesh, so the jig was up, and he's like, dude, I already fucking know where this is coming from. Get out of here. Get out. So, so they're not very sneaky. No. They are not so good at the sneakiness. Gilgamesh turned to Enkidu, laughed, and asked, Am I not to fight Humbaba the Fierce because I am afraid of facing death? Am I to be counted a coward? I don't think so. Only through glorious deeds will I ever achieve eternal renown, and every warrior knows death is preferable to dishonor. Mbaba may be fearsome, but nonetheless, I will go into the cedar forest and face him. This guy's the original yeah. frat bro. He kind of is. <laughs> Seeing their words would never deter him, the elders of Uruk bid Gilgamesh to safely return to the city and cautioned him not to depend on his strength alone in battle with Humbaba. Rather, he must remain watchful and wary. As for Enkidu, they bid him to join his friend on his quest, to walk in front of the king and to protect him in battle. To the gods, they prayed for the hero's safe return. Gilgamesh and Enkidu walked hand in hand to the Temple Sublime to stand before Ninsun. You know, the wild cow <laughs> goddess. 
Gilgamesh told his mother about the journey ahead and asked for her blessing, as well as for her to pray for his success. He vowed to return to Uruk's towering walls in time for the festival of the new year. Gilgamesh's plans frightened Ninsun, who retreated to her chamber, where she bathed herself with tamarisk and soapwort water before donning a robe and some jewels and placing her crown upon her head. She then ascended the stairs onto the roof of the Temple Sublime and made an offering of incense to Shamash, the sun god, asking him why he'd given her son such a sorry, such a restless heart. Not a relentless heart, although it's kind <laughs> of that too. A little bit. Oh yeah, this dude will not fucking stop. <laughs> <laughs> Such a restless heart that he now felt moved to take on Humbaba. Ninsun asked. S wow, Shamash is also apparently going to be really difficult for me to say over and over, so let's all hope I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> she asked Shamash to watch over her son from the day he entered the cedar forest until his return to Uruk. Ninsun also asked. Shamash, if Gilgamesh would be accepted by the gods as one of them so that he might share the heavens at their side. When her prayers were complete, she extinguished the incense, descended from the rooftop, and summoned Enkidu to her presence. When he appeared before her, Ninsun told Enkidu that though he'd not been born from her womb, he was nonetheless her son and promised to proclaim his children to be sacred votaries of Gilgamesh. As she placed a bejeweled pendant around his neck, she declared Enkidu to be her child now and brother to Gilgamesh, and bid him to protect himself and watch over his brother. Enkidu vowed to do as she bid and restore her son safely to her at their journey's end. Talk about some emotional manipulation. <laughs> no kidding. This dude does not even want to fight a giant, but she's like, you're my son now, so take care of your brother. <laughs> <laughs> Gilgamesh himself knelt at the altar of Shamash and entreated the sun god to spare his life and aid him in vanquishing Humbaba the Fierce. Why is this guy's name Humbaba? <laughs> <laughs> he said... I now venture down a road I have never traversed, and I don't know if I shall return. But if I am spared, I will pay due homage to you, Shamash, and give you the most magnificent offerings. <laughs> They'll be so great. They'll be stellar, dude. <laughs> I shall praise your name and build for you a great house of worship and a throne for you to sit upon. Hmm. Right? Bribing gods. What are you going to do? <laughs> the armorers arrived bearing weapons for Gilgamesh and Enkidu. For the heroes, they crafted massive axes and magnificent swords, as well as a monstrous bow with great fletched arrows. Before they set off, Gilgamesh instructed the elders to watch over Uruk in his absence, to judge fairly the grievances the grievances? What? <laughs> <laughs> the grievances of the poor and downtrodden, and to ensure the wealthy did not take unjust advantage while their king was away. 
As they departed, Enkidu turned to Gilgamesh, his king, his friend, and now his brother, and said, Since you've decided to devote yourself to this quest, let your heart be free of fear. Let your footsteps follow mine, for I know where Humbaba abides and the paths on which he travels. Follow me, and we will fulfill our destiny. The people of Uruk rejoiced at Enkidu's words and bid them one more farewell. And then the heroes went forth from the city. I think now is a good time for an intermission before I bring out our next course, which is just more of the same thing we're already eating. <laughs> <laughs> it's seconds. Woo, second helping. So let's take a short break. <laughs> Welcome back. I hope you're still hungry because holy shit, is there more where that came from? <laughs> There's a transition for you. (laughs) (laughs) It's so long. (laughs) That's what she said. Oh. (laughs) I mean, with four and a half feet, size feet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. In the space of three days, the mighty heroes made a journey that would have taken any other man seven weeks. (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry, all the threes and sevens, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) As they drew nearer to Mount Lebanon, they stopped to dig a well together and used it to refill their water skins before Gilgamesh ascended a mountain to its peak. Upon the ground, he used some flour to make an enchanted circle and said, O mountain, deliver unto me a dream that carries a favorable omen from Shamash. Exactly, he definitely did this. <laughs> oh, mountain. Oh, mountain. <laughs> Use this flower, quote-unquote, to uh, grant me some wisdom. It's really cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> he just, like, went in a circle and sniffed it. <laughs> so while he's making a circle, Enkidu crafted an entire dwelling for the god of dreams. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> um, after he affixed the door to keep the wind out, Enkidu had Gilgamesh lie down on the ground so he could make another enchanted circle around his body with flower. You know, mm-hmm. wink, wink, nudge, nudge, mm-hmm. flower. <laughs> As Gilgamesh lay awaiting his vision, Enkidu sat down in the threshold. Gilgamesh slept soundly until the middle of the night when he awakened abruptly and called out to Enkidu, asking if his friend had touched him or called out to him that he had woken so suddenly. Trembling slightly, Gilgamesh told Enkidu that he'd dreamt he was walking through a valley beneath a great mountain until the mountain fell upon him. Ouch. Boy, he has all these dreams about things falling on him. Stars, mountains. That's going to leave a mark. Did he hug the mountain and he's like, you're my new brother. (laughs) No. (laughs) This is not a warm and fuzzy one. There is no hug. The mountain fell upon him, leaving him trapped under it, abandoned by hope. So that's probably pretty bad. Uh, At the end of the dream, the sun rose, shining its light upon the mountain. Gilgamesh begged Enkidu to tell him the meaning of this vision. Because Enkidu had been born in the wilderness, he knew how to interpret dreams. 
So he said to his friend, Gilgamesh, your dream is auspicious. I had to double check that like seven times because I was like, don't you mean suspicious? (laughs) Your dream is totally sus. (laughs) <laughs> yes, Emily recently learned <laughs> sus. So. Why does everything have to be shortened, man? <laughs> Just speak. Don't be suspicious. Don't, Don't be, be suspicious. suspicious. Don't, Don't be suspicious. suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> okay, that's enough dance break. <laughs> it signifies that we will capture Humbaba and slay him. And the sun shining down represents the favor of Shamash shining upon us. They continued their arduous journey, once more crossing a distance that would take any other man seven weeks in just three days. Surprise! (laughs) Right? Me. Me surprise. (laughs) (laughs) We went different languages, but we both did it. Still closer to Mount Lebanon, they again stop to dig a well and refill their water skins, and then Gilgamesh does thing where he goes up the mountain and makes flower circle, and he's like, oh, mountain, give me a dream. And then they build another hut, and then he goes in, and he falls asleep, and he has another fucking dream, okay? <laughs> That's literally how I wrote it. He has another, he has another fucking dream, okay? <laughs> So just like the first time Gilgamesh falls asleep and wakes up with a start in the middle of the night, calling out to Enkidu and asking if his friend had touched him or done something else to wake him from his slumber. No, dude, you had a nightmare and you woke up because you're fucking scared. But that's fine. Keep blaming it on the guy who builds a whole hut for you. While you're making one flower circle. (laughs) While you're busy getting stoned. Yeah, okay. (laughs) He trembled and told the wild man that his second dream was even more terrifying than the first. In this one, the mountain appeared before Gilgamesh and threw the king to the ground, because I guess it has arms now. (laughs) (laughs) Then it grabbed him by the feet and held him fast, until a bright light suddenly appeared and shone over the land, growing brighter and brighter, until a handsome man appeared with the most perfect countenance Gilgamesh had ever seen, like ooh la la. (laughs) (laughs) That's a sexy motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) This handsome stranger freed Gilgamesh from the mountain's grip and gave him water to quench his thirst before helping the king to his feet once more. Yet again, Gilgamesh was like, someone tell me what my dream means because I can't ever figure this out, you know? (laughs) Enkidu told the king that that this dream too was a favorable omen. The mountain still represented Mbaba, so it was the giant who threw you to the ground and held you by the feet. <laughs> the really big feet. The really big line. feet. <laughs> he has giant hands. He held you by your clown shoes. <laughs> <laughs> the comely stranger was Shamash, the sun god, coming to free you from the grasp of Mbaba. This means that Shamash will assist us in our quest. Banish your fear and let us continue our journey. Stop being a little bitch and let's go. <laughs> Basically. Remember before we left and you were like, don't be a little bitch, bro. <laughs> you can't be scared to death. We're all going to die eventually. <laughs> well, now you seem like a little one. <laughs> Does anybody else feel like uh, Inkadu's kind of, I don't know, making Gilgamesh's dreams seem like they're he's going to win when really it's not going to go that way? 
I felt like that after the first one because I was like, in what world is a mountain landing on you good? <laughs> yeah. But the second one, I think, makes more sense. Like, because the guy at the end could be the sun god since there's the bright light sure. or whatever. And he's totally hot. He's the sexiest dude I have ever seen. <laughs> he looks like Pedro Pascal. <laughs> In my head, I don't know what you're picturing. Anyway, they repeat this entire cycle five more times because they love the number seven. And the dreams just keep getting more and more terrifying. And every time he's like, Ankadoo, what does this mean? Because I don't fucking know anything. <laughs> The wild man is all, the gods favor us, we're totally gonna win. We and got I didn't this. feel like typing all that out, so instead, that's what I'm gonna say about that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna skip ahead, and at last they arrived at the cedar forest. But when they reached its edge, Gilgamesh hesitated to enter and began to sob without warning. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Listen, I don't judge men for crying. I want to be very clear that I don't judge men for crying. I myself cry constantly, and it's really embarrassing because I can't seem to have any strong feeling without crying. But if you tell someone else to stop being a little bitch boy because you want to go fight a giant, <laughs> and then you cry before you go into the woods, I am going to make fun of you a little. <laughs> and it's fair. Enkidu asked his friend why he was crying <laughs> and was all, uh, how about instead we get up and go in the forest like big boys? <laughs> get your shit together, man. We don't have time for this. Man up. Nut up or shut up. All right, I'm done. Moving on. <laughs> Nut up or shut up. Shamash, witnessing this, called out to them from the heavens and said in his thunderous voice, Go forth at once and assail Humbaba. Do not let him enter the depths of the forest or wrap himself in the seven enchanted cloaks. <laughs> Why are there seven? He's going to look like that kid from the Christmas story when he can't, <laughs> he can't put his arms, his arms down. <laughs> Randy. <laughs> so many cloaks. <laughs> Don't let him wrap himself in seven cloaks that he uses to protect himself. Right now, he's only wearing one, so he's vulnerable as long as you can prevent him from reaching the other six. You must not delay. At these words, Gilgamesh's heart grew three sizes. I'm just kidding. It grew bold. <laughs> he reverse grinched. He reverse grinched. <laughs> He grew bold once again and charged forward into the trees as if he were a raging bull. Enkidu was like, all right, guess I better follow you. <laughs> as they walked through the forest, fear stole into Enkidu's heart, and he told Gilgamesh that perhaps they should venture no further, for he felt his strength was deserting him. Now Gilgamesh turned to his friend and reminded him of all they had accomplished together so far. Yeah, he built you seven <laughs> I was just I don't that. remember you doing anything. <laughs> he told Enkidu not to fear death. You were crying a few <laughs> minutes ago. <laughs> and remind him, oh my god, but instead to bellow out like a wild bull. I can't. Instead to bellow out like a wild bull, for it would restore his strength. Together they would surely prevail. Comforted by the king's words, Enkidu took Gilgamesh's hand and they strode forth again in search of Humbaba. 
Do they skip through the forest hand in hand? Maybe. <laughs> Picking little flowers. Sprinkling that magic flower behind them. <laughs> Oh my god, why do I think it's cocaine? (laughs) (laughs) At last they reached Humbaba's stronghold and drew their weapons as they prepared themselves to confront their enemy. But Humbaba already knew they'd arrived. And he popped out and was like, surprise, bitch! Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, But they did hurl some insults at each other and there was some general psychological warfare that I figured it was best not to repeat. (laughs) And then the three warriors threw down in the forest, attacking one another with such force that they split the ground beneath their feet, causing Mount Hernan to break away from Mount Lebanon. It just created the butt crack of the mountain? Yes. (laughs) Have you ever fought your opponent with such ferocity that you broke a mountain chain? (laughs) The clouds above them turned black and death rained down upon them like fog. I don't know what that means, but I'm putting it in because it says it in the thing. I'm just picturing a bunch of like dead bodies falling from the clouds. <laughs> but how does fog rain? I don't know. I didn't write this. I did, but I didn't. You know what I'm trying to say. So yeah, death was raining down them down on them like fog. We don't know what that means. <laughs> But, you know, whatever. It was on a really old stone tablet, so I left it in the story anyway. Uh, Shamash used 13 mighty winds coming from every direction to assail Humbaba, which prevented the giant from being able to charge forward or retreat, allowing Gilgamesh to defeat the giant with his great weapons. Uh, when it was clear that he'd been bested, Humbaba be- I- Wow, Jesus Christ, I don't know how to say the word begged now. (laughs) Baba begged Gilgamesh for mercy, vowing he would be his good and faithful servant if the king would but spare his wretched life. Enkidu was like, don't believe that noise, because he's a fucking liar. (laughs) (laughs) Remember the dreams and the mountain with hands? (laughs) The hand mountain and your feet up in the air. (laughs) And the really handsome man that came down from the sky. And the cocaine. He was dreamy, and I want some of that cocaine. (laughs) You build a hut this time, you asshole. (laughs) Yeah, so anyway, he was like, don't believe him because he's a liar. Uh, You need to kill him right now. Like everything else in this poem, this drags out for a really long time, so let's just (laughs) cut to the chase. (laughs) Gilgamesh dicks around long enough for Humbaba to utter a curse. For Enkidu to die before reaching old age so that Gilgamesh would have to bury his friend. <gasps> That's mean. Right? What a dick. I know. It's a douche move. So messed up. Only after that happens did they finally smite Humbaba with three mighty blows between them. The ravines in the forest ran red with the giant's blood. <laughs> I'm such a horrible person, but I like that image. (laughs) Afterward, Gilgamesh used his mighty axe to fell many great cedar trees. From the wood of these trees, they built a large raft, which they used to sail down the Euphrates River in the direction of Nippur. Enkidu manned the helm, while Gilgamesh sat around holding Humbaba's severed head. (laughs) He's so... Lazy. He's such a spoiled brat. I'm just gonna hold this. Thanks, bro. I'm just gonna hold the head. Steer the raft. 
he probably made the other guy build the raft too. <laughs> probably. Just, I'm, just, I'm assuming, but I feel like I have good reasons. After they returned to Uruk, the goddess Ishtar appeared to Gilgamesh and tried to seduce the king, because, you know, he's so awesome. But he rejected her advances because of how poorly she'd treated her previous lovers. Quick pause. Gods never treat their human lovers nicely. This is not shocking. <laughs> like most omnipotent beings, Ishtar did not take rejection well. So, she asked Anu, her father, to send the Bull of Heaven to Avenger. At first, her father was like, why don't you just try being reasonable for five minutes? But after she threatened to, to do a bunch of really messed up stuff, he was like, oh my god, take the bull and leave me alone. <laughs> New psycho. <laughs> it, that makes me think of um, John Ralphio and uh, <laughs> Mona Lisa. Like, Mommy, please! <laughs> I've never done anything wrong ever in my life. <laughs> <sighs> so anyway, she led the bull down to Uruk and was like, have at it. And the massive bull wreaked havoc on the city, ultimately causing so much destruction that it created massive pits that swallowed up 300 people and lowered the level of the Euphrates River so much that all of the marshes dried up. <gasps> well, that's not good. So it turns out a really huge godlike bull can just drain your marshes. <laughs> I drain your marshes. I drain your marshes all up. <laughs> oh, good God. All right. So working together, Enkidu and Gilgamesh, you know, buds for life, managed to slay the bull without any divine intervention, and they cut out its heart as an offering to Shamash. When Ishtar wailed in rage, Ankadu threw part of the bull's ass at her. <laughs> <laughs> Have I mentioned that I like Ankadu so much better so than Bull? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. That night the city celebrated, but Ankadu had an ominous dream. In his sleep, he envisioned a conversation in which the gods decided one of the two heroes must die because they'd killed Humbaba and the Bull of Heaven. Shamash did his best to defend them, but ultimately the gods marked Enkidu for death. In response, Enkidu cursed the gods and his fate, but above all, he cursed Shamhat for seducing him and leading him out of the wilderness. Aww. Um, she was kind of, like, pushed into that situation, wasn't she? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She did that against her will. And you're the one that threw the ass of the bull of heaven at somebody. <laughs> at Ishtar. At Ishtar. <laughs> so, she was pushed into going and seducing him. He went on the whole freaking journey to begin with because Gilgamesh is just a whiny little brat who had to prove himself. Mm -hmm. He did all the freaking work. Ishtar gets pissed off, sends the bull down. They're like, crap, well, we got to do something about this. And somehow it's all Enkidu's fault. Like, Gilgamesh should be punished for this, not Enkidu. Gilgamesh was the one holding the head, wandering around with the head. He's just like, I don't feel like doing anything. I, I'm just an old head. He started all of it. Listen, I don't think that you're wrong, but this is how the story goes. <laughs> 
Um, anyway, I also had to super reduce this part of the story, so just, you know, imagine in your head that Enkidu has time to go through the seven stages of grieving for himself. And when his bitterness faded away, he retracted his curse on Shamhat and instead blessed her. Aw, I feel better about it now. Yeah, I don't care if he curses all the gods, that's fine for yeah. him. But <laughs> he does decide that he's going to place a blessing on her instead and does what he can to accept his impending demise. In a second dream, Enkidu saw himself being captured by an angel of death and dragged to the netherworld. When they reached the netherworld, Enkidu realized it was a house of dust and darkness where the dead ate clay and lived under the constant supervision of terrifying beings. Over a period of 12 days, Enkidu grew ill with a violent fever and his condition steadily worsened. Upon realizing he wouldn't even be granted the honor of a heroic death, Enkidu lamented his fate and then passed away. That's bullshit. Yes, it is. Unable to accept his friend's death, Gilgamesh clung to Enkidu's dead body, refusing to admit his friend was gone for so long that a maggot finally dropped from Enkidu's nose. Ew. Ew. That's that little... That's a special detail to add to the story. I don't know. It was in the tablets. <laughs> Gross. Having finally been forced to face the truth, Gilgamesh lamented the loss of his friend, comrade, and brother, and called out for all of man and nature to mourn for his fallen friend. Enkidu was laid to rest in a riverbed. Driven mad by grief, Gilgamesh wandered the wilderness cloaked in animal hides. He wept for Enkidu while also steadily growing to fear his own death, and decided to set out in search of Utnapishtim, a man who, with his wife, was one of the sole survivors of the Great Flood. Together, they'd been granted eternal life by the gods, and Gilgamesh hoped to learn the secret of immortality from them. As he crossed a mountain pass in the darkness one night, Gilgamesh suddenly found himself surrounded by an entire pride of lions. Uh-oh. Hmm. Hercules? Sounds like Hercules, right? Mm-hmm. Hercules was clearly influenced by this story yeah. also. Yep. Fuck, I have barking dogs. With no other options in sight, Gilgamesh sat down and prayed to the moon god Sin to protect him before eventually lying down and falling asleep amidst the pride. When he awakened in the morning, he found within himself a burst of strength and slew every last lion, then took their skins to wear as clothing. Oh, yeah, there's Hercules. Yup. Yep. After a protracted and very dangerous journey, Gilgamesh at last arrived at the twin peaks of Mount Mashu at the end of the earth where he found a tunnel which no man had ever entered. Standing guard at this tunnel were two monstrous scorpions, who seemed to be mates. The male scorpion did his best to discourage Gilgamesh from entering the tunnel, but the female took pity upon the much-aggrieved king and allowed him to pass into the tunnel, which led Gilgamesh through the mountains along the Road of the Sun. 
In 12 hours, Gilgamesh managed to traverse the entire tunnel before the sun was able to catch up with him and, you know, burn him alive. (laughs) (laughs) And so his life was spared again. Upon exiting the tunnel, Gilgamesh found himself in the Garden of the Gods, a beautiful paradise where the trees were laden with jewels. The first person he encountered there was Siduri, a woman who initially mistook him for a murderer because of how crazy and wild his appearance had become. That's pretty funny. Right? She too tried to dissuade Gilgamesh from his quest before ultimately helping him find the ferryman to take him across the water to see Utnapishtim. However, Siduri warned Gilgamesh that he must be cautious, for the water he needed to cross to reach Utnapishtim was deadly. Only the stone beings would not be harmed by the waters, and their alliance with the ferryman was the only thing that made crossing to see Utnapishtim possible at all. Gilgamesh listened to all of this well enough to follow the physical direction she'd given him to locate the ferryman, but apparently he didn't listen that well, because when he found the stone beings, he decided to attack them with an axe. Ugh. Sounds like Gilgamesh. Not super bright. He's not very smart. Urshanabi, the ferryman, tried to intervene, but Gilgamesh easily overpowered him. Seeing the ferryman attacked, the stone beings fled in fear, so the king pursued them onto the bridge where he smashed them to pieces that fell into the water and sank. Well done. Weird flex, bro. Weird flex, bro. I can't talk. (laughs) That was his nickname after all those mountain nights. (laughs) Just call me blow. (laughs) Afterward, Gilgamesh returned and stood before the ferryman and told the man about his quest. Dude, we could have done this first. (laughs) (laughs) Only to have the ferryman respond, Your hand has indeed hindered the crossing you wish for. The stone beings alone were not affected by the waters of death, and so I relied upon them to carry me across the ocean. By destroying them, you have left only one method to reach Utnapishtim. Go into the forest, use your axe to cut 300 rods that are 60 cubits in length, then coat them in pitch. Into each of these rods, carve a socket. When you are finished, bring them to me. This time, Gilgamesh actually did as he'd been instructed. (laughs) For once. For once in his life. With the rods completed, the men launched the boat and began to cross the ocean. When they reached the midpoint, the ferryman warned that they'd now arrived at the waters of death, and Gilgamesh must be sure not to touch the water or he would perish. The ferryman then instructed the king to take a rod and use it to propel them forward by pushing off the bottom. However, Gilgamesh must make sure to discard each rod after a single use, because you can't keep touching it, because then you'll die. Mm -hmm. After the 300 rods had been used, Gilgamesh Gilgamesh fashioned... There's too many shhs. There is a lot of (laughs) sounds. 
he fashioned a sail that they used to guide them the rest of the way across the ocean. Wouldn't that have been useful to start with? I don't think that there was any, like, I don't think the wind blows over the waters of death. Like, based on what I, my understanding of what I read, there's no wind on that part of the water, so you can't do that. Hmm, okay. It's just a technicality so that they have to do the thing with the rods. From the shore, Utnapishtim watched as the boat drew near, wondering to himself what had become of the stone beings and who this man was who approached. Yep, he's that dumb. It's fine. (laughs) They're not going to get along that well. (laughs) When the boat made land, Gilgamesh disembarked and approached Utnapishtim and explained that he wished to learn the secret of eternal life. When Utnapishtim asked what brought him to this place, Gilgamesh told his whole woe-is-me story about how his friend died. (laughs) When the story was finished, Utnapishtim chastised Gilgamesh and called him a fool, asking if he'd ever bothered to compare his lot in life to the average man's, for the gods had clearly given the king a blessed life. No shit, yeah. Yeah. I love a salty old man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, his friend had died. But in response, Gilgamesh had undertaken a perilous journey that had removed years from his life from the great effort it had taken to bring him to this shore. In other words, in his quest to thwart death, Gilgamesh had actually hastened its coming. Whoops. Sounds right. It's legit. Okay, lovely guests, I think it's time to take one last short break because I hate the sound of my voice. <laughs> I'll be back <laughs> with dessert in with dessert in just a moment. <laughs> and we're back. I hope you saved some room for dessert because I have a complex and exquisitely aged selection for you to choose from. Ooh. Pick wisely. Uh-oh. When Utnapishtim finished his speech, Gilgamesh asked once more how he'd achieved immortality. Then Utnapishtim told him the story of the Great Flood, which the gods had chosen to unleash upon the world as punishment. The god Enki favored Utnapishtim and gave him instructions to build a boat and, you know, like a smart person, he did what he was told to do. What? (laughs) Did he fill it with two of each kind of animal? I don't know. Hmm. When the boat was completed, Utnapishtim, his entire family, and all of the animals they could find boarded just in time for a violent storm to burst forth from the heavens. Oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. I've never heard that story before. Brand new to me. (laughs) (laughs) For six days and six nights, rain poured from the skies, and all of humanity, except the people on the boat, were destroyed, (laughs) okay? Eventually, the boat became lodged in a mountain, and Utnapishtim emerged to look out upon the world. When he saw nothing but ocean, he wept for all the lives that had been lost. He and the other inhabitants exited the boat and made a sacrifice to the gods, the sweet smell of which drew them to the mountain. When Enlil arrived and learned there were survivors, he grew enraged. 
but Ishtar and Enki chastised Enlil for having unleashed too harsh a punishment on the world. In the end, Enlil agreed to grant Utnapishtim and his wife eternal life. Sorry I killed pretty much everything ever, but you can live forever and enjoy what's left. (laughs) You can live forever and watch everything else die. Woo, death. Yep. In short, the story illustrated that the gift they'd been given was unique and unlikely to be duplicated. Gilgamesh, however, refused to believe this. Of course he did. (laughs) So Utnapishtim challenged the king to stay awake for six days and seven nights to prove himself worthy of the gift of immortality. No sooner had Gilgamesh sat down than he fell asleep. (laughs) Yep. So Utnapishtim instructed his wife to bake a loaf of bread each day while Gilgamesh slept so that he wouldn't be able to wake up and be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I wasn't asleep. You can't prove it. It's pretty smart. Utnapishtim's a smart guy, but he's also been alive a really long time. Mm -hmm. This is true. At the end of the challenge, Utnapishtim pointed out to Gilgamesh that he'd been unable to conquer even sleep, so he would never have the ability to conquer death. Oh, that had to burn. Salt all up in that wound. Sick burn. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Gilgamesh admitted defeat, but as he was about to leave, Utnapishtim's wife bade her husband to at least give him a parting gift. A loaf of bread. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. (laughs) Here, we have way too much bread. I can't eat all this. Please take it. (laughs) Utnapishtim then told the king there was a thorny plant growing deep at the bottom of the ocean, and that if Gilgamesh were able to procure it and consume it, he would be made young again, and if he carefully portioned it, he would live an incredibly long life. Gilgamesh dug a shaft deep into the earth until he reached the abyss. Then he bound heavy stones to both of his feet and allowed these to drag him down to the bottom of the ocean, where he found the plant. Are you okay? I'm just picturing him like tying giant boulders to his giant ass feet. Like drag himself along. He's like a water slide. Well, swimming is hard, so why not just let rocks do it for you? Um, anyway, he found the plant Utnapishtim had described. As he laid his hands upon it, it scratched and cut him painfully, but he persisted in his efforts to get a firm grasp on the plant, at which point he cut the heavy stones from his feet, causing him to rise upward and return to shore. That's right, he doesn't even swim on the way back up. (laughs) He just shoots up like Harry Potter out of the water. Don't do that too fast, son. You'll get the (laughs) bend. When he'd returned with the plant, he and the ferryman set forth on their return journey. After traveling 30 leagues, they rested for the night, and Gilgamesh found a cool pond of water that he chose to bathe himself in. As he cleansed himself, a serpent smelled the fragrance of the magic plant, and so he slithered forth quietly and stole it for his own. Uh Uh-oh. As he slithered away with his prize, he shed his skin upon the ground. When Gilgamesh realized what had happened, he sat himself down on the ground and wept, 
heavy tears streaming down his cheeks. He said to the ferryman, For what purpose have my hands toiled? For what purpose have I spent the blood of my heart? I have obtained nothing for myself from my efforts, for a serpent has reaped the benefits of all I have done. Because of the great shaft I dug to attain the plant, the flood tides have risen for the space of 20 leagues. How are we now to find any landmarks to return to get another plant? We must abandon the boat here upon the shore and continue our journey on foot. You done fucked up, son. (laughs) (laughs) After traveling another 30 leagues, they came at last to the high walls of Uruk, and Gilgamesh bid the ferryman to behold its glory. He urged him to gaze upon the walls and how they shone like copper in the sun. To observe the lower wall, which nothing in the world could equal. He told the ferryman Uruk's threshold was so ancient, it extended farther back in time than human memory. And as Gilgamesh described his own city to this stranger, it was as if he himself truly beheld it for the first time. He said aloud, no king will ever surpass its like. And that's the end of the story. I lost my plant. Check out my pretty city. (laughs) Okay, there was a lot more walking, but we didn't have time for it. So just think of this story as kind of like Game of Thrones. You know how we would take whole seasons for a character to travel from point A to point Mm -hmm. B early in the show. But at the end, we'd be like, we have to do this whole trip in one episode. So get it the fuck done. That's the approach I took. (laughs) So there was like a lot more walking that happened at the end, but I was like, "Mm, no, we're done. They're there. But at least he eventually came to appreciate his city because it didn't seem like he did very much before, huh? He was a douche. Yeah. I don't like him. (laughs) Yeah. He was kind of always a douche. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's an alternate ending to this story, too, that doesn't make any sense. So, fun fact about things that are written on tablets, sometimes it's hard to tell, like, where something goes if you have a random tablet that doesn't fit the rest of the story. (laughs) So, there's actually a tablet known as Tablet 12 that has, like, a totally different version of how Enkidu dies. So, in this version, somehow... Uh, Gilgamesh, big bonehead, loses a whole bunch of his possessions and they end up in the netherworld. And Enkidu's like, I'll go get that stuff for you, buddy. (laughs) So, yeah. So they get all these instructions about what Enkidu can and can't do when he gets to the netherworld. Well, when he gets down there, he does all the stuff he's not allowed to do and then he can't leave, so he has to stay there forever. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, so that's uh, the truly epic tale for this week. Um, I had a hard time deciding whether I should just stop the episode there or if, like, I should still do, like, where else do we see this? Because, holy shit, we've been here a really long time. So instead, I split the difference and I was like, I'll do a really short thing where I point out some other places that have great flood myths because that sounds fun. (laughs) (laughs) 
So anyone who's familiar with Christianity probably immediately thought of the biblical story of Noah's Ark when mm-hmm. I was telling Utnapishtim's mm-hmm. backstory. I know Emily did because she was all, did they put two of every animal on the boat? Yep. <laughs> I don't know, because they weren't that specific. They probably had three or seven of everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, the vast majority of scholars agree based on just the massive number of similarities between Utnapishtim's story and the flood in the Bible that it had to have been influenced by the Epic of Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. Like, there's too much of it that's too close I even took out a part where he sends out birds to yeah. go out from the boat and bring stuff back because we didn't have time for it. So the vast majority of scholars are like, no, listen, this story influenced this other one. Mm-hmm. So if you're one of those people who's like, the Bible is the one true thing, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. So not really sorry. You said this <laughs> this story, the writing of it predated the the first the, the Old Testament, Testament Thank by you. like 300 by several years. several hundred years. Yeah. yeah, somewhere between about 350 to 700 years. So, yep. Um, if you've been with us since the beginning of Pineapple Pizza Podcast, you may also have been reminded of the North American myth of the Sky Woman and the Turtle, because mm-hmm. that too had the world end in a great big flood, and then we had to completely start over. Mm-hmm. If you weren't here for that episode, go back and check out Creative Mischief and the Divine Feminine. There aren't as many parallels, but it's still a great flood story, so it still works. Mm-hmm. And while there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of other examples of deluge or flood narratives, my last example for this week is that of the Men... Sorry, I'm going to get this wrong if I don't concentrate because it's a lot of syllables. Manvantara Sandhya from Hindu mythology, in which Vishnu warns Manu, the first man, of an impending great flood and instructs him to build a large ship that enables him to survive. Whoa, I didn't know about that one. Uh-uh. Yeah, I had to find, I wanted to find one because there's like a lot. I almost did one from Greek mythology too, but then I was like, people will probably know that one. So I wanted to pick one mm-hmm. that I felt like people might not know. There's also a Zoroastrian one, but I want to save that in case I want to do that later. Yeah, thanks. So that's that's actually going to be it for this week. Um, ingredients for this dish were sourced from History.com's page on Mesopotamia, an article by Leslie Kennedy called The Prehistoric Ages, How Humans Lived Before Written Records, also from History.com, a page on the Fertile Crescent from the National Geographic Society, several pages from Wikipedia, as always, a page from ancienttext.org on the Epic of Gilgamesh, an ebook, Gilgamesh the New Translation, translated by Gerald J. Davis and published in 2014, an article from the Journal of Anthropology by Mark H. Stone called The Cubit, a History and Measurement Commentary, which I used one time and still had to put it on the list. <laughs> And finally, a page from the website BigThink.com by Paul Ratner called How Old is the Bible? All right. Well, that's it. This has been a really long episode, so I don't know if we want to do something good or if you just want me to put the closing on it. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't mind doing something. Do we have something short that we can do for something good? Each of us? Sure. 
Uh, something good. I just ordered you guys our anniversary gifts, and I'm so excited for you to get them. You are going to flip out. Because I was ordering Christmas gifts, and I was like, I like these Christmas gifts. But I wanted to get something extra special for the anniversary, so just you wait. Nice. <laughs> it's going to give you both some wet dreams. Whoop. Gross. <laughs> Better change my sheets. <laughs> I'm confused, but okay. <laughs> Weird gift to give your friends? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um, I don't really know if I have anything because I just had like a terrible week. Um, but I survived it. So my something good, I guess, is that I survived my horrible week. And I also somehow got through rereading the Epic of Gilgamesh, so that's that, pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Um, I love how I'm looking behind me as if something behind me is like kind of spark about that. <laughs> spark my curiosity and memory. You got a raise. I did. I got um, a raise at work, and I got a promotion. So when I'm not podcasting, I w- I do digital marketing. And I've been with the company for almost three years now. So instead of being a specialist, I am now a digital marketing manager. So more responsibilities, but a lot of it is stuff I was already doing. So that was outside of my job description. Mm-hmm. So now it's just officially in my job description and some other cool things that I'll be doing. So very exciting. That is exciting. That's awesome Congrats. news. Thank That's you. That's awesome. Okay, uh, I think it's time to close up the restaurant because holy fuck, we've been here forever. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for visiting our beautiful pizzeria and enjoying a king-sized slice of Turkish epic poetry. Pineapple Pizza Podcast, sweet and cheesy. Not everyone understands our awesomeness, but we're glad that you do? Question mark. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to help support us, Check out our Tee Public shop for some amazingly fun and funny merch. Or if you want to do a one-time donation, you can do that on buymeacoffee.com and buy us a fresh slice. Because we can never get enough of basically anything, if we're being honest. If you absolutely love the show and you want to check out some fantastic bonus content, you can become a donor on Patreon and earn all kinds of amazing benefits. We have three tiers to accommodate almost any budget. The $3 Mythbuster, $7 Cryptid Hunter, and $15 Storyteller. Become a patron today and start enjoying all the perks and extra content right away. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at PineAppPizzaPod. That's PineAppAppPizzaPod. You can also send us questions, comments, and topic ideas at PineAppPizzaPod. APP pizza pod at gmail.com. Remember, there's the two P's in app. Otherwise, you're emailing someone else, and I don't want to be held responsible for that. Thanks for stopping in for some deliciously weird morsels. And just remember, no matter how you slice it, you're awesome. And we love you.